Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver, and this is Healing Jephthah's Daughters, the podcast. Our focus text for this episode is Judges 11, verse 35. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Today, I welcome two of my closest male friends, Reverend Leander Hardaway and Reverend Daryl Owens, for a conversation about grief and parenting. You remember Reverend Hardaway from a few weeks ago, and Reverend Daryl Owens serves as a grief counselor for women's services and a chaplain in the Department of Pastoral Care at the University of North Carolina. Let's listen in as we discuss grief and parenting. Good morning, Reverend Owens. Good morning. Please call me Daryl. I will call you Daryl. I wanted to introduce you properly for our listeners. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I will call you Daryl. Daryl, introduce yourself. Tell our listeners what you do and what your context is. Sure. I am the women's services staff chaplain and grief counselor here at the University of North Carolina Hospitals in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So primarily what I do is provide spiritual care and grief support for patients, families, and staff, primarily perinatal losses, Hmm. meaning the losses like stillbirths, Hmm. uh, miscarriages, things like that. And also with GYN oncology, female cancers. Most of our patients die in hospices, but we do have some who will die here in the hospital. And for our perinatal losses like labor and delivery, I follow those families for a year for grief support. I do grief talks with them before they leave, sort of grief support, grief counseling with them. Mm -hmm. And then I also participate in a bereavement support group for the community here. It seems, and correct me if I'm wrong on this or where it needs nuancing, that the primary client is our women, but in that you follow families, that also includes the fathers, the men. The other parent. The other parent. Ah, thank you for that. So so we're here. Uh, Judges 11 is our focus text. Yeah. So let's talk about grief broadly. What is grief? Usually the simplest way I define grief is it's a response to loss. And loss does not always result in death. For instance, some people don't always recognize that in their histories of grief, some of the grief they've experienced and connected with may have to do with they broke up with their best friend of 20 years. Hmm. They had a significant tearing at the relationship. And the best friend is who they would normally talk to going through this tumultuous time. But that's whom they're at odds with. So they can't go to that best friend. 
college students can experience grief when they're going to college, which is supposedly a wonderful thing, but maybe they're living on the East Coast and they're going to the West Coast as a freshman with no friends, no community. Hmm. There can be grief there, especially if they call home, missing home, and their parent says, oh yeah, we're having a gathering and uncle such and such is here and cousin such and they're like, oh well, I'm not there. Grief can be that. Businesses when they close, people who have lost homes. We typically look at grief connected directly with death. But even then, even though the person has died, there's so many levels to the grief. Hmm. When my twin died, um, we were about 45. That was my twin. Hmm. You know, afterwards, I'm like, okay, am I a twin? Am I not? Hmm. No one ever took his place or could take his place. So not only did I grieve his death, but I grieve the loss of the many roles that he played in my life. He was my womb mate. <laughs> you like to say that, my womb mate. Yeah. Grief is typically or just simply a response to loss. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between the way men and women grieve? Because some would say, you know, women, well, men are stoic, right? That there are particular kinds of manifestations. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Ken Doka and Terry Martin are two psychologists who did work years ago on masculine and feminine grief. And some of their female colleagues researchers said, well, I grieve like what you're describing for the men. So what are you saying? Mm. And then they changed the terminology from masculine and feminine grief to instrumental and intuitive grief. Now, none of these are on one end of the spectrum and then the other. It's a continuum. Sure. Intuitive grief for the ones who emote. Okay. They have to feel it and express it and talk about it and things. And then the instrumental one is the one who's more in their heads. They're processing in their heads. They're not as much in the heart, Mm -hmm. thinking it through. And they're ones who have to be active, doing things. They may not want to talk about it as much, but they will do it in their own ways. So I look at it more so that way, because I remember a, a colleague of mine checked me. She was at a training I was doing for perinatal loss for parents. And I said, typically moms do it this way and dads typically do it that way. Mm -hmm. And she said, Daryl, my husband grieved as you described typically for the moms and I did what you described typically for the dads. Ah. I was consoling him and that was a normal expression for him. Mm. So I personally pull away from that But we're socialized certain ways. Men are socialized to not do the feelings. You know, most of the support groups I've done over the years, the majority of the attendees are women. There has been an all-male support group that was done here at our hospital with one of the psychologists. Um, He did a, a group with dads. And they talked about the losses of their children and just how phenomenal and unique it was. And they had it written up in the New York Times. So I think with socialization and genderizing, as you've said, it typically says, if you're a man, you do this. If you're a woman, you do, you know, all that stuff. Right. But then it creates such confusion and it creates shame. It creates a whole lot of negativity there for people who don't fit 
in what people say you're supposed to grieve or do. I tell people, as long as you're not hurting someone else and yourself, it's a part of it. Absolutely. And and what I appreciate about this paradigm of instrumental versus intuitive is that it disengenders the activity and the emotion and what it looks like, right? That it is not bound to these male, female binaries. But, but it says to me that the human experience manifests itself differently. And these are two different categories of the manifestation with either instrumental or intuitive they don't exist exclusively. Right. What I mean by that is if someone functions more, grieves more instrumentally, that is what it will look like to people who observe this human. But it does not mean that the human is also not experiencing things in the heart. Because they are. Exactly. The instrumentality is the way in which that human manages those emotions and that thing. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if someone is emotive and demonstrative and crying and weepy, it does not mean that that human is also not having thoughts and memory and remembering and having certain ways of thinking, right? It doesn't mean that the head is divorced from the heart or vice versa. It is just the external manifestations of how this, this human is managing their grief. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Coming back around a little closer to the text. So Jephthah tears his clothes. He has this demonstration of grief, but he has the language of blame. Mm -hmm. My question is, what is the relationship of grief and guilt? Because I would like to believe, or I should say, it helps me to believe, to entertain that Jephthah felt some kind of guilt that his foolish vow would end in the death of his daughter. And I may be misassigning this particular concept to this verse, but I wanted to say, fool, did you feel guilty? Is that why you were grieving? I mean, is guilt a part of the reason you're grieving? You Like, what? So is there a relationship between grief and guilt? Yes. Can you say more about it? I think with anybody who's close to us when they die, Guilt's a normal part of the grieving process. Did I do everything that I could? Okay, but now with Jephthah, at this point when Jephthah sees his daughter coming out, did he think there was nothing else he could do? Well, I made the vow. That's it. Done. And see, I don't know. I know in certain parts of the Hebrew Bible, when you made a vow, it's like, don't make a vow and break it. You can't do that, right? Right. So, you know, the language of the binding between you and God. When I look at that, I've always wondered if he felt guilty about having made that vow because there's a little part of that in that chapter that talks about the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Yeah, but you know how I feel about that. Right. And then all this stuff happened. So I'm like, so was the spirit of the Lord upon him when he made the vow? Did it lift? What's going on here? You used the example of Abraham God had a ram in the bush. There was nothing for Jephthah's daughter. I'm like, where does God come into this? Yeah. I have so many questions about that event. Um, When he tore his clothes, was it because he couldn't or didn't know that he could do something different? Because here he was not a hero before. Now he is. You know, he's gone through with his own community who did not affirm him 
didn't like him, drove him away. Now he's come back and he's going to be head. And now his daughter, he's having to give up because of a vow he made. I love to get into the heads of people and their hearts, too. I'm like, so what are you thinking now? (laughs) What were you thinking when you did that? What would you share with somebody else about this situation? Because this is a traumatic event. Because not only have you, you know, won this victory, you slaughtered all these people. Now your daughter's going to have to die. So how does that connect with you've seen death? You've caused death in the name of the Lord with the victory with the other countries. Now you're causing the death of your daughter. So let's put it this way. If guilt wasn't in there, I'd be like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. And well, and you know, you raise the question of, you know, where is God in this? I'm poorly paraphrasing what you said, perhaps. No, that's how I said it. <laughs> okay, okay. I, right. Okay. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. You know, in reading some of the commentaries, right? Usually white male Western commentaries, no one wants to implicate God. Yeah. Right. Like no one wants to implicate God. And and what I appreciate is there are so many ways in which to read this text. Yes. Right. And as we talked about in earlier episodes, if you talk to Hebrew Bible scholars, you know, everyone says Jephthah knew. Now, my English teacher background, which I'm grateful for Hebrew Bible scholars, I said, well, there's nothing in the English translation that we have that suggests that that voice is from the narrator. But we understand, you know, Hebrew Bible um, construction, et cetera. He should have known. Okay, and I'm going to let that hang in the back. But if we just look at the literary text in front of us as a piece of literary text, right, there is nothing that said that he knew he would be successful. But... The culture, he knew that if he was, he could expect his daughter, right? That was the expectation. Which begs the question, why was he so shocked then that he tore his clothes and said, oh, my daughter, you've brought this upon me. I didn't read it as shock because tearing your clothes was a cultural response to grief. Yes. And so he was grieving. And another reason I don't read it as shock is because then he goes on to blame her. He didn't say, oh, my goodness, I didn't expect you to come out. He didn't say that. Right. He tore his clothes, Mm -hmm. which was the prescribed custom of grieving. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't say shock to me. And then he goes to blame. Which I saw as a reaction. I agree with that. Now, what motivates that reaction? I don't know if we'll agree. But what does occur to me with this, did he not expect to win? Because in Jephthah's life, he never won. Yes, he didn't win with his father. So so one of the things that I find fascinating about this text, and it is a question, not only for the text, but it is a question that I know, and you probably have the same experience, and many therapists and counselors have the same experience. There is a way in which humans generally can project onto God the same expectations, et cetera, that they have with their parent. It is often said that parents are a child's first image of God. Oh, yeah. Who is God to a child? It is a parent, right? That is the first person that a child comes in contact with. And for a child, a parent is omnipotent. Oh, yeah. They come out of nowhere and feed me and change me. They're, they're there, they come from. And there's a way in which humans, children project that. And so when we look at Jephthah, when we look at children who have had particular kinds of traumatic experiences in childhood, there is a way that unchecked, 
unexplored, if there's not counseling or therapy, the same feelings, expectations, behaviors that one has come to expect and be formed in by one's parents gets transferred to God. Oh yeah. To God and others. And others, right. So so Jephthah has no frame of reference, but well, I don't know why I would expect to win, right? My mother, somehow he got disconnected from his mother. Right. His father, his other parent, right, did not protect him. Yeah. Right. Half brothers put him out the house. Stepmother, father's wife, parents, wife didn't protect him. So he comes in contact with this other group of people, you know, contemporary context. We might call a a gang, a club, whatever. Mm -hmm. So they go. One version says marauding, you know, kind of hanging out, doing (laughs) stuff, you know, you know, stealing pocketbooks so they can go to a concert. Right. They need money. Right, Right. 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 And so. You know, he gets kind of put up. So so from the literary standpoint of the text, there is no precedent in Jephthah's life to make him think that God's going to come through for him. So maybe he didn't even expect to win. That's something to think about. And with that, I think about, well, why did his brothers and the elders of Gideon come to him? Because the text says he's a mighty warrior. They're like, we need help. So he had to win something. At some point. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. Because they wouldn't have come to him if they didn't think he could succeed. Good point. That's where a lot of my imagination is sort of percolating. Yeah, because if he was successful, that here the person they rejected, they have to humble themselves and come and say, will you fight our battle for us? You and all of your, like you said, the marauders or the, the guys who were hanging around him who were not your first-class citizens at the time. (laughs) So if you're coming and needing them to fight for you, you've had some kind of success. Correct. So if you had that kind of success Mm -hmm. and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, you're exuberant Mm. and you're making this vow and you know what your culture states and says... Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm like, hmm. then why is it that when she comes out, you're like, oh, my daughter, you've brought. I'm like, well, if this is normal, then why is Jephthah flipping the script onto his daughter as he did? Agreed. Right. We don't know. As a warrior, he's not. Hmm. I've got to be very careful with this next statement because I'm in the 21st century. I don't see the military being trained to deal with their feelings as much. Because if so, they couldn't be successful in annihilating communities of people at that time. And I hear that. And that raises the whole issue of killing and just war and the psychology that attends those who fight and kill. And it speaks to, and I think you and I were talking about this at one point, how do veterans get reintegrated? Yeah. Right? Like experiencing PTSD and then you come home and we've read and heard accounts in the news about military people who have struggled with integration. Yes. And that family members and friends and other people have suffered sometimes fatally, right? Because of the lack of mental health support when people are integrated. And understanding. Don't forget our Vietnam vets. Mm. They fought for our safety. And when they came back, remember the protest. And many people were saying, you're murderers, you're doing this. And they were fighting for our freedom. Sure. But they were treated as criminals. So I wonder about that. 
too, when it comes to Jephthah and, all, and his people. I wonder what's with all of that. Yeah. No, there are so many questions. And that's why these conversations are helpful, because it helps us not only unmine, unearth, dig around in the biblical text, but also to have these um, analog and corollary conversations about what does this look like in a contemporary context and to raise the universal issues of the human experience, grief and death and loss, parent-child relationships, intuitive versus instrumental grief. Let me ask a question, kind of perhaps en route to closing. What happens when grief is repressed? We know that repressing grief is both human and unhealthy. Repression is a natural response, as I understand. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But what happens when a human represses his, her, their grief? It's going to come out and it will come out at times when you least expect it. When we're teaching our chaplaincy students here about dealing with death and dying here in a hospital setting, especially in an emergency setting, you've got to deal with your own grief if you're going to be with others. Sure. Because you don't know where yours stops and it starts to intrude upon the other person's experience with death and dying. I feel like if you repress it and you're keeping it down, it's not as natural. And you're keeping down a lot of feelings. You're keeping down a lot of thoughts. There's one psychologist, a British psychologist, um, Margaret Strube, I think is her name. And she talks about the oscillating process of grief Hmm. and that even we as professionals do it. In other words, you will confront and then other times you will pull away from grief. Okay. And so pulling away from grief is one thing because you'll deal with it when you can. Mm -hmm. Repressing it is acting to me. This is Daryl. Other mental health folks can, you know, disagree and that's fine. Repression to me would be pushing it down as if it never happened. Ah, okay. And I'm like, when you're repressing it, you're repressing anything that goes along with it. Now, I've been around people where the trauma of the death was so debilitating, I couldn't talk with them about it. Mm -mm. They didn't want to talk because it was too much and they feared being able to live through processing it, which is why they wouldn't bring it up. So I feel like if you're repressing it, you're repressing a lot of what goes along with it. So it's debilitating for you. It's handicapping for you. Okay, that's helpful. There is a way in which sometimes, not all humans, that if we don't manage our grief well, it will get rerouted into circumstances and places and onto people and circumstances and things in ways that are disproportionate or incongruent with what's happening at the moment. And if the person is continually doing it and not aware of it, they're not even aware of the extraness of it all. Absolutely. For instance, I think about people who it's the anger. Yes. And they come out with such a fury about nothing because they've never dealt with this stuff. They don't want to deal with it. And they will come out and it's like the world owes me something. You say good morning and somebody... Oh, they're biting your head off. Mm -hmm. Are you angry? No. (laughs) Are you... (laughs) You know, yeah. And it could be a lot of projection. It could be a lot of reactivity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go anywhere. Right. And some people are like that and nobody died. But that's another story. So my, (laughs) you said that I didn't. (laughs) I overshade of it all. (laughs) My 
one last question. Can you recommend ways or suggestions for people on how to engage their grief? You know, there are so many different platforms that one can use. Support groups, which I've talked about, bereavement support groups, and they can be virtual. Many of them are virtual now. So you could do it from the comforts of your own home. There are chat rooms, Facebook chat groups that you have to be vetted to get in so that no predators can get in there. That's attached to certain diseases Mm. that finalize or culminate into death so that the survivors can, can be a part of that. You know, especially like if children die of particular cancers, the parents can be a part of the bereavement group there. Talking to grief support people like grief counselors, therapists. I often say to people, especially if they're dealing with things like if they've already had a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or something like that to deal with their mental health provider. And then they can simultaneously work with a grief support person so that the other person can be responsible for the mental health piece and the grief person can deal with just the grief. I've done that many a times with people. They're seeing their psychiatrist and they come to me just for the grief. And, you know, One person, they gave permission for the psychiatrist and I to talk at times if we needed to, just to keep things clear for this patient or for this person. Some people say, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm very introverted. I journal. Well, journal because, you know, it's normal for grief to be up at three in the morning thinking about it. So what's coming to mind? Mm. And if you journal, I always say, don't filter. And don't correct your grammar. Just let it be a free-flowing because it becomes very cathartic. Sure. There are um, grief camps. There are many different things that people do as it relates to expressing grief. And what we're saying is, what are tools that you can use to help you learn to live with the grief mm-hmm. so that it doesn't cause you to become dysfunctional in your life? Because one thing about grief, Grief has been here and it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. As long as people are being born, people are going to die. People die daily. And the older you get, you will experience grief more, 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 and more. So learning how to deal with it is very important because when we don't, as you've talked about the repression, we see how it affects people individually. We see how it affects families. We see how it affects cultures. Mm If you don't deal with things, you know, and I think the slowing down of the pandemic, I I looked at this award show, music award show yesterday, and one of the artists was saying because of the pandemic, they had to sit still. And by sitting still, they had to sit with some things and it caused their writing. They began to out of sitting with whatever they wrote some incredible music, Hmm. but it's because they were forced to sit still. And I think that's something that's happened over this pandemic. People have been forced to sit still, not just with the health, but also with the racial pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had to sit still and many people have had to deal with grief that's been there Mm. for years. Things they've seen and experienced that they just tried to push away because it was too painful. Sure, sure. But it's not going anywhere. So it's best to engage it as much as you can safely Mm -hmm. and then move, move accordingly. That's helpful. Daryl Owens, my friend, it was so good to see you and have this conversation with you. 
And same here. It's been wonderful. I'm so grateful to you and for you. Thank you. And I hope you'll come back again. I will be glad to. Amen. Many thanks once again to Daryl for joining me today. I want to invite you to listen in on my conversation with a parent, a father. You remember Reverend Leander Hardaway from a few weeks ago. Leander is a father to three daughters, a husband, and a minister. He is an attorney and a mitigation expert for the National Death Penalty Project. After listening to a few episodes of Healing Jephthah's Daughters, Leander called me and said, you know, I'm Jephthah to my oldest daughter. Listen in to someone who identifies as Jephthah in his own story. Hello, twin. Hello, twin. Good to see you. Let's get into it. So tell me your feeling about the story. Um, It hit me in a number of ways, but uh, the most profoundly is, is that I have three daughters and um, being relatively transparent, I have one daughter that doesn't talk to me. She's 32 now. And um, it's painful. When I listen to the text and uh, some of the discussions, it brought up something in me um, that made me think about things in a, in a different way. And so what happens is I've become um, kind of enamored with the idea of seeing where I fit in. It's easy to say how other people fit, but it's not as easy to see how you fit. Mm. So I'm really focused on what this means because um, probably at some point during this journey, I can reconnect or at least try to reconnect with my daughter. Mm. It's, it's, it's easier to look back as, as a preacher or this or that and say, hey, I see you. But it's, it's more important for me to see myself. And as I see myself, I'm hoping that at some point I can have a, a uh, reconnection with my daughter and we can have like a discussion where we can really lay some things bare that we've never laid bare before. And um, hoping to prevent anything with my other two daughters. And what's interesting is when I did this workshop in the Bronx, that was the first time men got put on my radar regarding this work. Reverend Dr. Zoleka Adams, who's the assistant pastor of Mount Carmel Baptist Church in the Bronx, told me that there was a man who wanted to attend. I never thought about men as attendees because it was healing Jephthah's daughters. However, he said to her, my daughter doesn't speak to me and I'd like to understand why. And so she told me his story and it was clear to me why his daughter wasn't speaking to him. He and his wife divorced. He remarried and had another child, a daughter, and they lived in the same neighborhood. And so this daughter grew up seeing her father with his new wife and another daughter who was not her. And she struggled about why he wasn't a father to her. And it was at that point that I realized that there are many lenses, many entry points on this story. Like I know my concern was out of my own location and context, but that Men were interested as well, fathers particularly, of girls especially. And for me, it was interesting because it was so clear to me why his daughter didn't speak to him. 
but he didn't understand. Leander, what did your relationship with your father teach you about relating to your children, especially your daughters? When you lived as long as I've lived, okay, um, I've had a chance to think. I mean, my thing is this. Um, I don't really hold any grudges against my father. I'm not angry. I mean, I know he, he was born in 1920. And a black man in 1920, it's like, you know, my thing is this. I can understand. I can, I can I can understand things. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm complicit with it, but I can understand things. Okay. Um, I've never seen anybody lynch from a tree before. Okay. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, I, I said to myself, I was never going to be like my father. Mm. You wake up after 63 years and you realize, give it to you, notwithstanding the degrees and this and that, I'm <laughs> principally the same man. Mm. 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 And so there's a there's a part of me, wow, and somebody told me this a long time ago. This was a a, a, a gentleman named Dr. Jeffrey Howard. Uh he created an organization called the Efficacy Institute in Lexington, Massachusetts. Um, psychologist. He told me, because I was working for him as a trainer going around the country. Mm -hmm. He told me that my emotional self had not caught up to my intellectual self. Mm. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't, I mean, it was, he was driving me to the airport, man. And he just made the comment and it was like, wow, you know, a, a, a message doesn't have to be loud to be profound. Sure. And that stayed with me for about like 15, 20 years now. Mm. But that whole thing there is like, while I was working on various things, the things that I should have been working on or could have been working on, I didn't work on. But, you know, I, I got to just say, hey, I didn't know. That's why stuff like this is great, because I didn't know. I didn't know I was, I didn't know that what I was going to do would have a direct impact on any of my kids, let alone just my daughter. Absolutely. And, and had I known that, not just intellectually, but more so spiritually and emotionally, I, I, I would have at least stopped and tried to, to turn things around. Sure, sure. And, and we don't know what we don't know, right? If we don't have a model or a teacher or someone to tell us, we don't know what we don't know. That's number one. The second thing is there is a way in which children who are neglected, abused in many and all of its forms there's a way that they develop these compensatory schemas, I call them, right? There's a way in which when children are trying to manage emotions, those emotions, that energy gets rerouted, right? You become, you know, bookworms, you become academic overachievers, you become athletes, you throw yourself into things. And if they don't have the benefit of therapy and reflection and a guide, a, a therapist, a spiritual director, someone to help them, they grow into adults. I call it the oholic syndrome, right? Workaholic, schoolaholic, sportsaholic, you know, could be, you know, alcoholic, spendaholic, right? That, that there are these ways in which that energy gets diverted, right? Because the pain, the wound that is deep has not been addressed because there's been no one there to guide them through it. If we we're taught to manage and engage emotions, right? If we were taught 
how to modulate, how to manage and balance. We wouldn't go through these extremes. Um, but you don't know what you don't know. And oftentimes we learn by, we learn through our experiences and then can look back and paint more accurate pictures and as adults apply more accurate language to our situations, our contexts. That's very powerful because I've done workshops with brothers and, you know, I always start with, how you doing? Mm-hmm. And that's like a trick question. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, and, and that's and, and what happens is you. I have to ask that question like fifteen and twenty times, and then they start cussing. And in the cussing, they're saying how they really feel now. Absolutely. And that's the whole thing that you're talking about. The, um, nobody gives us language, and nobody gives men the language. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have the language. If you never learn the language as a as a child, you can't really put into real perspective how you feel, and you really can't decode what's being said or felt by your daughter or whoever else it is. So the so that 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 chasm there never gets filled until umpteen years later. If you got a therapist or you're watching, you're you're you're, you're listening to this podcast. Or, and, and if you're not, maybe you never find the language. Mm. You just kind of exist in a vacuum. I have a question for you that someone asked. They said, if you could be in conversation with Jephthah before he killed his daughter, what would you say to him? Oh. How does it feel to be a man? Say more. Um, you know, the text doesn't tell us a whole lot about him, you know, and, um, just who he is because who he is, okay, at his essence, triggered his response to his daughter and everything around him. And when I look at, you know, like when I, when I, when I review just a few words of the text, I see myself as him. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's beyond this different kinds of murder. You know, his emotional murder, his physical murder. So, but what happens if you don't know, everybody's capable of a, a certain kind of killing. Okay. At any point in time. And to understand that, I mean, maybe that's why the scripture is written that way. It it forces us to to grapple with that, you know, uh, irrespective of what time period we're in, to deal with that. But um, for me to understand who he was as a man, you know, what 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 is his relationship with women, you know, what you know, my thing is this: sometimes, as much as I love my mother, uh, I wonder if some of the things I do. I'm not a reaction to just being raised by a woman. Oh, do you have an example? Here's the thing that I think a lot of times that people don't understand. You hear people say, you hear women say, I'm a mother and a father. Well, no, you're not. And while you are handling everything, that doesn't make you the father. That makes you the mother and you're dealing with the absence of the father. There are certain things that my mother did Okay, and we never really had a chance to really like really talk about these things. But I'm like, 
you know, is she reacting to her love for my father and, and the, the void that was left in when my man, when, 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 when my father left or is this just who she is? So there's a lot of questions that are unanswered, but, um, I need to, I, I, I need to understand what was going on with that because, um, I just don't know. And at this age, I'm probably not going to get those answers because both of my parents are gone. So I have to, I have to figure out a paradigm that allows me to, to put this stuff together. I have one more question for you and then one more thing I'd like you to do. What wisdom would you offer men about how to be in relationship with their daughters? Listen, but listen with your heart and not your head. I mean, you got to listen with both. But listen with your heart. And, yo, the, the most important thing about listening is, is this. It's easy to listen for the things that people say. It's the things that they don't say that are even more important. That's important, whether it's ministry, whether it's law. It's, 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 it's the things that are not said. Okay, and once you listen, then you got to be able to probe the chasm. And you can't be afraid. See, that's that's the thing. For 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 guys like me, I'm no different than anybody else. The, um, we don't necessarily want to jump in the hole, okay? Because we don't know how far down the hole is. You know, are we ever going to be able to get back? Okay. So when you when you take that step and you say you're going to go in there, you go in there not knowing what to expect. But but the answers are in the chasm. So if we can listen, okay, if we can listen to what our daughters are saying, and I'm not just talking about the, the physical listening, the nonverbal cues. The, I got a daughter who's, uh, she does a, she, she, she has a lot of uh, black humor, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this kind of dark, you know, and, uh, and sarcasm. Brilliant. Okay, brilliant. But, you know, we've had some rough patches, um, you know, with teenagers. But what happens, I've learned to embrace her way of communicating through the dark humor. Because it's mm -hmm. her trying to give herself voice. You know, when you got, I never had siblings. So the idea of having kids is a far, people think that you, you're a parent and it's just, Oh, well, no problem. One, two, three, whatever, four, five, six kids, whatever. What happens is, is that there's a whole dynamic in between them and then between their parents. And they each crying out to have some, they each have a separate relationship with you. And you have to be able to understand that the same comment made by one person is going to be different if made by the same, by another person. It has a totally different meaning. And if you're not listening, okay, compassionately, you're not going to get it. And if you don't get it, you're opening or closing, depending on how you want to look at it, you're opening or closing a whole set of doors that you may not get to revisit ever or until people are adults. Thank you for that. I appreciate that immensely. Uh, years ago, decades ago, I read a book that I am still trying to find. I thought I bought it and I can't find it in my home, but it was called The Lost Art of Listening. 
one thing that still stands out to me is that people listen to respond. They don't listen to understand. They're so busy listening to deconstruct your argument, to, to prove you wrong, to say, that, right, they're reloading, they're listening, you know, so, so well, you said I didn't take the trash out. Well, I'm going to say you didn't make up the bet, right? They're listening to their, their, the distinction that you made that I hear you make between hearing and listening, right? Um, again, people who know me, they are probably sick of hearing me say this word, but right, kenosis, right? I'm, it is no secret that I am a ordained clergy person, right? And so my initial sermon was Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what is, what is often referred to as a Christological hymn. And when it talks about Jesus emptying himself, right, that word is kenosis. And I, I and I'll, I'll believe this until God convinces me otherwise, that a fundamental part of listening is the invitation to be kenotic before someone else to empty yourself and just listen. What is this person saying? What is this person trying to communicate? What, is, what are this person's joys, their sorrows? Where do they hurt? What are they trying? What do they need? Finally, uh, Leander, thank you so much for all of this. What, what I also want to do is to broaden the lens just a little bit with this last piece. Can you, for our listeners, tell us what you do, tell us about your work, and do you see any themes in this work, Jephthah's daughter's work broadly or grief specifically, uh, today's topic? Do you see this showing up in your work? Because I think your work is fascinating. Well, um, the limited legal work that I do these days is I work with death penalty teams on uh, capital, capital defense teams uh, on uh, mitigation which is the process of, of lessening the uh, death penalty. And I work on cases that are not authorized and, and then eventually cases that are authorized. Um, putting together social constructs of individuals that have been charged with capital cases. Um, and what you find when you do, I'm what you call a mitigation expert. And so, um, we did a lot of training in mitigation stuff, and it was interesting because it's deeper than just law. Behind every crime, there's pain. And I've interviewed people for hours. I've interviewed, I've interviewed a woman, interviewed a woman for 16 hours. Okay, who she was the the the, the sister of my first case, which was a. A serial murder case in in uh, in Ohio, and she was talking. We were having a conversation. I don't interview people; I have conversations with them. And uh, we were on her porch in Cleveland, in a place called Gooneyville, with these gangs and everything. And she was like the mother of the block. And as we kept going, you know, we were talking, and then we got to a certain point where she got stuck. So I'm like, no problem. We'll, we'll, we'll talk again tomorrow. You know, it's no problem. So we started again. And uh, so eight hours one day, eight hours the next. And so when we got to this point again, this, we're, we're almost at 16 hours of conversation. She got stuck again. 
but she tried to work through and she remembered they had twin cousins and that he would tie the girls up in um in uh with um extension cords. Well, you know, that just happened to be one of the modes of how he killed these women. My goodness. She had pushed that down. She had to be the better part of like forty something, maybe fifty something years old. So it's not it's not like this happened two weeks ago and she pushed it down. She had pushed this down for a couple of decades. And he was charged and convicted of 11 murders, but there were 35 women that were missing. And she's talking to some guy with a bow tie from New York City. You know what I'm saying? And it's like the last thing that was on her mind or on her spirit was conjuring this stuff up. So the whole death penalty thing is powerful and it ties to the grief thing because there's another part of this called Defense Initiated Victims Outreach. And it's really about, it's an extension of the death penalty movement to work with the victims. It comes out of the restorative justice movement. And, and so what happens is that, um, you know, when you look at grief, that whole concept of grief can metastasize and become a need for retribution. They've done documentaries and studies of actual families that have had loved ones that were killed and they, they've been waiting for someone that was on death row to be executed. Imagine you have grief and you told yourself that that grief will be lessened if this person gets an injection. And then you have to go through about 15, 20 years going through the courts and everything else and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then at the end, the person finally gets uh, the injection. Mm -hmm. But you don't feel any different. That's what makes this grief thing so powerful. It's like, oh, well, you know, if Hardaway gets the injection, Lisa Weaver's going to feel better. Hardaway got the injection, Lisa Weaver doesn't feel any better. You know what happens? It goes back to what you were talking about before. You get upset and you're angry with your father or you're angry with this person or you're angry with that person and then they're gone or it's resolved to a certain point, but you still want to have a target. So this work is more than just litigating the death penalty. Leander, my dear friend, I am so grateful for you. Many thanks once again to Daryl and Leander for joining me today. As you reflect on today's episode, I invite you to reflect on these things. Number one, what are you grieving? Who are you grieving? Are you grieving parents, spouses, children, family, relationships, missed opportunities? Another thing to consider is what have you suppressed that needs to be grieved? What have you pushed through that really does deserve your attention and your grief. Finally, consider what strategies you use to understand and live with the grief you hold. All of these are important because grief, like joy, is a part of life. Next week, I will share a few reflections on what we've discussed so far to conclude our first season and to look forward to season two. Until then, my prayer for you is freedom, 
healing and wholeness.